Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Hockey News on the E! Podcast. I'm Jacob Stoller from the Hockey News, alongside Justin Cohn from the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. It's playoffs, baby. Conference finals right in the final stages. Probably the the best time of the Kelly Cup finals if you're an ECHL fan, I would say. Yeah, you know, I could see myself in this little, you know, viewfire video here. I see my my hair and all I'm thinking is I have the bedraggled look of a man that watched a double overtime game six last night between Florida and Newfoundland. And uh, one thing about Newfoundland being in the ECHL, it's sort of nice. They get those early starts. I believe it was 530 Eastern time. So I was sitting there. It was like double overtime game and it was only 930 where I was. I was I was feeling great. I was ready for them to go, you know, three three, maybe four overtimes, but didn't, didn't happen there. It was uh, uh, the Everblades won it in double overtime. So they advanced to the Kelly cup finals. And that was the longest game in Newfoundland Growlers history, by the way, when they reached uh, uh, the six minute mark of the second overtime, that became the longest game in Growlers history. You know, how you hear those stories of like what happens between the double overtime, triple overtimes in NHL. I can only imagine what that's like in the coast. Like, like, uh, I, are they buying hot dogs in their mission to, to eat? Like I can only imagine it's, it's something to that degree in terms of fueling up at that time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, there's lots of crazy things that go on because you don't have the amenities, right? Like you don't have yeah. the, the infrastructure to just send, you know, go, go out and get us, you know, I, I don't know, whatever we need to, to rehydrate, whatever food we need, you know, maybe you've got an equipment managers running out, you know, maybe they're doing a little door dash to get them some food before the third overtime and nothing would surprise me, but uh, I, it was a, it was a great game uh, in that game six, a three to two game. John McCarron uh, wins it. And, you know, he is such a, a big game player. He has come up with so many big goals for uh, the Everblades so many times before, but this was a wild goal. It, it was a very difficult angle shot uh, almost from the left corner seemed to catch the goalie Luke Cavillan over the shoulder. And, you know, I, I didn't know how to feel about it because in that overtime, there were so many great scoring chances for both teams, really end to end hockey breakaways, odd man rushes, both sides, both goaltenders were standing on their heads. And so my first reaction was almost like, wow, after all those great stops, this is the goal that won it. Like just sort of like some prayer from the corner. But then I thought about it and I was like, Maybe that was the kind of shot it was going to take, just a pinpoint accuracy, you know, snipe from the corner that, uh, you know, so I, I don't know how to feel about it at this time. I, you saw it. I mean, did you have any initial thoughts? No, not really to, to that degree other than, I mean, I just love the the crowd silencer. I love whenever there's a, a row double OT goal like that. I mean, it, it's it's the best. I mean, I can, I, it's obviously heartbreaking as a home fan, but that was just my kind of indication. Cause like, obviously everyone wants to see an OT winner at home. I like it on a way. I like the, the science of the crowd and just kind of hearing that. That was my very uh, non-technical observation. Well, so there is essence. No, there is sometimes some interesting moments. Of course, you're not going to have that with Newfoundland at this stage, but sometimes you see some teams go down almost in overtime at home. And then you, you, you the crowd's obviously disappointed and then you hope they're going to ha- sort of rally and and acknowledge the team for the last time this season. You know, they all go to center ice and all that stuff. But I have seen fans that are so shocked and disappointed that you don't exactly know how they're going to react. Fort Wayne in 2022 got upset in overtime by wheeling uh, in game seven at Memorial Coliseum. And there was like this 
shock. Like everybody was shocked. Like nobody in Fort Wayne thought they were actually going to lose the series. And so you're like, Oh boy, are they going to boo? Like, what are they going to do? And of course, you know, everybody takes a couple minutes and then they acknowledge, you know, cause everybody's always had a great season, right? We acknowledge the great season. So I, I know what you're saying. It is funny, especially if you're kind of a crowd watcher, a people watcher to see how people react, uh, in those, in those situations. But, um, you know, back to, to John McCarran, I mean, Florida, they're the defending champions. So they're back in the finals. Now they're going to play the Idaho steelheads. And I tell you what, everybody in North American sports media is talking about the Miami heat. They're talking about the Florida Panthers, these upstart underdog teams going to the finals. Why is nobody talking about the Florida Everblades with them? nearby Estero, Florida, fourth seed in the division picked by this show, in other words, me, to lose in the first round of the playoffs. And here they are. They are back. They're going to take on the Dynamo, the Idaho Steelhead. So I just, I feel like we should really recognize what Florida has done here because I will admit it. I I took them for granted and they are, they have done it. They have taken down some powerhouse teams. The South Carolina Stingrays, who I picked to win it all, the Jacksonville Icemen, and now the Newfoundland Growlers. And, um, you know, a, a couple things just to, to bring up. Goaltending touched on it. Cam Johnson of Florida, he is a workhorse. You know, nothing new. He has been incredible all season. But with Newfoundland, Dryden McKay started the series as the goaltender. Luke Cavillan took over, uh, I believe it was in game three. And I I, I don't know if I'm going to take some some backlash for saying this, but after watching a lot of that series, I think Luke Cavillan's better than Dryden McKay. Like, I mean, that that was my takeaway was I understand they're both prospects. Dryden McKay's the bigger prospect, but Luke Cavillan, I mean, he put on an absolute show even in the loss in game six at home. I mean, he put a 925 save percentage in six games in the playoffs. That's that's a very, very impressive number. And I think also Cavillan's younger than McKay. Right, he's coming right from the OHL. A lot more room to grow and develop. I want to ask you though about Florida. Why do you think you overlooked them? Obviously, the regular season wasn't as good. But what about their team? Maybe didn't convince you of, of them be able to do this? Well, I mean, I, okay, overlooked me is a little strong word, but yes, I I, did, I think I did pick that first round series. I think I had South Carolina South Carolina winning in seven games, and I do remember saying at the time I didn't feel great about it. But I, you know, I think there's a, a few factors here. Um, you know, they're an experienced team and I have found, especially at this level, when you bring back a nucleus of a team that has just won a championship, and I've seen this having covered six championships at this level, it is a little bit difficult to get quite as amped up to bring it every day of the regular season, because what you want to do is get yourself in position in the playoffs. So I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that Florida was was mailing it in. They were in the league's toughest division. But I feel like their mentality was get us to the playoffs and then we'll see what happens because we know how to win in the playoffs. And that's kind of what's gone on here is they have overtaken some less experienced teams and they've played with a, a remarkable amount of savvy here. And we've seen an, an incredible amount of depth. I mean, there are guys that are stepping up Oliver Chow is a great example, guys that we didn't even really talk about during the regular season, and here they are in the playoffs. So I feel like that coaching staff, which is so experienced, has had so much success, they know that it's kind of a slow build, a slow grind 
to get you in position for the playoffs and then you unleash it. So I think that's part of it is, is, you know, they were not prioritizing the regular season as much as the playoffs and, and maybe they let some other teams overtake them in that respect, but goaltending, um, playing physical at the right times, dealing with the little things like travel. I mean, it's no small thing to go win a three, four formatted series against the Newfoundland Growlers, which has been a, a, a powerhouse since they entered the league. Uh, but they have in, endured this type of thing before Florida has. And so I just think they've, they've known how to do some things like that. Like if Jacksonville had had to play Newfoundland in a three, four series, they hadn't been through that stuff before. I don't know if they would have been able to deal with it as well. So I, I just think experience and, 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 you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint as much as I hate that cliche when people throw it at me. I think it does typify a little bit what Florida has done this year. Their opponent, you know, the Growlers, a lot of upside, a lot of young, exciting prospects. Let's get to our prospect of the week while we're at it. Pavel Gogolev, um, sort of a one of the few, one of the few players that has become sort of a star in the ECHL in the sense of like he's a young guy, he's 23 years old. He was a big player last year for them, and now this year, uh, his rights were traded from the Maple Leafs to the Blackhawks. Uh, in a trade, the Jake McCabe trade, they bought him out. And then after two games at Rockford, he returned to the Growlers, finished year with 65 points in 46 games, and then in the playoffs, 17 points in 16 games. One of the most purely skilled players in this league, without a doubt, I would say. Yeah, I even went back and looked at some notes because we had Newfoundland as our team of the week, I believe, in like January. And I wanted to see what I had said about Gogolev then because watching this game six, I will admit, I did not fully appreciate just how good he is at this right. level. Uh, he's got, first of all, he plays with more size than he really has. He's six foot one, I believe. And I, I actually was a little bit surprised because I, I would have thought he was six four, maybe six five with the way he was, he was moving some players around. But, you know, the big thing I see is he's just got great stick handling, great mobility, great skating, and great awareness of not only where the the goal is but where the opposing players are because he's a guy that's going to come into the offensive zone he's going to be along the boards he's going to spin around he's going to make some deeks he's going to do some wild things reminds me a lot of a guy named Zach Pachiro who about four or five years ago with the Allen Americans was just tearing it up goal scoring wise um, so very skilled playmaker and you know when you have a guy like that I mean who's you know, can really do these offensive moves that very few other guys could do. And you surround him with guys who can put him in possession in position for success, whether it's Zach O'Brien, whether it's Oren Santazo, um, Zach Solo, guys like that. Um, you know, it's really, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, thing to have at this level. And I didn't really watch much of it and think, Hey, this guy's a defensive liability or anything like that. So, you know, that's a big thing too, but you know, it's just in terms of a guy who's going to make some plays on the wing and put other guys in position to succeed if he doesn't just snipe a goal himself. You know, I think Gogolev is is one of the best right now. You know, like you said, 33 goals in 46 regular season games. There are very, very few players in the ECHL that I can think of who are even capable of doing something like that. And when you are standing out on such a deep roster like uh, Newfoundland has because they have so many guys. And and another thing I'd like to say about Newfoundland is a lot of guys were sacrificing themselves, you know, through that series. When you see Zach O'Brien making a huge shot block in the first overtime 
uh, what I thought was going to be a sure goal. And this is maybe the best player in the league and maybe the best offensive player in the league. I think that bodes well for what you built there. And then a couple minutes later, I saw Oren Santazo do the same thing. And again, I'm thinking, boy, I mean, it's great that they're doing it, but this is the last guy you also want taking a puck to the face. So, you know, good on them. I think they, they really fought to the end and, and what Eric Wellwood has, has built there. And, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with the Maple Leafs organization, right? You know, like, will he maybe have some position moving up? Because who knows right now? I, he's got nothing left to prove at this level. So, you know, the growlers have been too, great. About Gogolev is whether he works out with Toronto or not, I think that if you look at his journey going from a really skilled overage player in the CHL, getting an opportunity during the COVID year, but then, you know, the next year going down with the growlers and developing, the ECHL has definitely become a league over the last couple of years where if you're an overage player and maybe you don't have the best options in the AHL or you're sent down and whatnot, getting a full year of being a top player in the ECHL, it's proven you can move up a level, right? And I think that a lot of the time, these overage players maybe fizzle out in North America quicker because they either go to Europe and then go on different trajectory there and kind of rule out the return of coming to North America and then once they're there. But, you know, with the ECHL becoming a much more competitive and development-oriented league, there's going to be a lot more cases like Gogolev going forward of overage players that get a shot and really spend some time down at this level. I mean, in my experience, I do feel that there is this gap with the overage players where um, right. the NHL, the NHL people seem to, well, you know, we didn't like him at, at 18. So we've given up on him or, um, you know, just a lot of reasons. They, they seem to just kind of fall through, uh, you know, fall into these crevasses and the ECHL is the place where you can prove what you can do at this level and get an opportunity. So, you know, I guess we're saying the same thing, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's a great league for things like that. There's, you know, there's a player this year, Ty Felber. He was a nice player. I mean, everybody recognized him as a nice player, fringe AHL player. He has a monster season in the AHL. This, or in the ECHL gets called up to Milwaukee and is, you know, was just on fire. So he wasn't able to stay with them because then they had too many bodies from the National Predators. But the point is, he put in a good, let's say, five months this year in the ECHL, and he has set himself up for next year. The belief is Milwaukee's going to resign him. But if they don't, he's going to have tons of money waiting for him in Europe. Or worst case scenario is you come back to the ECHL, but instead of being, eh, he's a fringe guy, now you know you're going to be one of the first call-ups from any team out there, right? So that's what this league should be. Well, do I have to point your everyone's attention to one of the best goal scorers in the playoffs right now, Carter Verhage? Sorry, point scorers. You know, he he went down to Missouri Mavericks. He spent some time there when he wasn't working on at Bridgeport. And that's one of the best modern-day success stories, right? For a while, it was always ECHL's this place for goalies and whatnot. But no, like, that gap you talked about is really important because I think that people overlook it. And the ECHL, with the way the league is going, right, and the way it's progressed, can kind of fill that void um, it's not like all these players are going to work out, but the point is I think the pathway has become more established is what I more so meant. Yeah. Well, and, and we're also starting to see, I think over the last, let's say five years, sure. AHL teams and to some extent NHL teams are becoming more reliant on ECHL coaches for scouting these guys that fall through the cracks, if that makes totally. sense. So, well, so I mean, a lot of teams have scouts too now. 
where the AHL yep. team, by pro- by proxy the NHL team, because sometimes a lot of the time they're owned by them, will have a pro development scout or a pro scout, and their job is to kind of be a national or sorry league wide scout for the ECHL to find these hidden gems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there are some East, like Fort Wayne has had a scout with the name Peter South for. 15 years. And I, I can remember a time where people thought that was, Oh boy, what Fort Wayne must be spending all sorts of money. And they were, you know, like, I don't know how much they're paying him, but no other teams really had their own scout. And now you see other teams doing that. And I can think of a situation just, I think four years ago where there was an AHL team and they hadn't really signed enough guys. It was very clear to me. They hadn't signed enough guys. And then their ECHL affiliate, like they had done a great job. Uh, recruiting and scouting. And so the AHL team just was like taking all their guys, you know? So you see more teams realizing that the ECHL teams, because they're so attuned with not just the overage guys, but like the the U sports guys coming out guys that the NHL teams miss. And so they are, I think you're really onto something relying on these ECHL teams to find, identify some guys who maybe we missed on. And then you help, get them to our camp and then we see what happens or we leave them with you in the ECHL for a while. So I, I do think you're really on to something there. The Western conference finals was decided in five games. Idaho fish finishes off Toledo. Um, you know, before we, we kind of get to the series itself, I thought it was really cool. I read this article in the athletic by Max Boltman about Sebastian Cosa and it was saying how um, TJ Hensick had a really good quote about how, or maybe it wasn't him directly quoting it, but he was talking about Cosa and whatnot and about how, a guy like, you know, his, we talked about it, he struggled in the beginning of the year, and then in the second half, he really flipped the switch, goal turn of the month in March. But I, I read that every single practice, Hensick and Kosa were out on the ice at least 20 minutes before practice working on things around the, the second half of the year. They called him a worker, and it was a tough ending for Kosa in the last game, but I think all in all, we should acknowledge how, how great of a finish the year Kosa had in the ECHL. Oh, yeah, I mean, look, 100%. Look, you know... You see the Red Wing thing. Sorry, over there. Uh, I'm from Detroit. I'm a Red Wing guy. Yeah, you know, the camera gets mirrored. Yeah, um, so, you know, I get, you know, more questions from people in my personal circle, friends and family and whatnot, about COSA than other um, ECHL players, obviously. Sure. And I never wavered. Like, even when he was not doing wonderfully well, I was like, Hey, he looks like a legit prospect for me. I mean, he's young. He's a rookie. He's playing pros really for the first time. Let's give him a minute here. And let's remember, you know, Toledo had a bad start. Like their defense was not great. Uh, they just they as a full. Yeah. They, just as a full team, they got off to a horrible start. I was, yeah. I covered a game there in, I guess it was late December. I mean, I mean, the fans were down on everything, including Kosa. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I come out of the season really thinking, hey, it was a great success because his play steadily improved throughout the year. He helps get them to a conference final. He got to work with guys like TJ Hensick, a former NHL player, uh, all kinds of experienced guys and coaches on that roster. And he's sharing the net with John Leatherman. And I actually think that sort of competition is really good for a player like Kosa. I mean, I don't know exactly how they scripted it, in the playoffs, but they seem to be switching off. But no matter how you cut it, you know, he's got to be ready to go every second. He's competing for playing time with Leatherman. So I think that makes a young goaltender uh, better. You know, I, I just, I come away with from it as a Red Wing guy thinking he's steadily improved. And I feel 
he's absolutely the prospect that I hoped he would be a year ago. Now, um, Idaho, four to one to win. What did you see through the series and just what led to this game or this series ending in five? Well, so, you know, Idaho won the first two games at Idaho. And so now you're watching in game three, which was on May 24th, how are they going to respond? And that was a very interesting game. Toledo scored first. It was Brett McKenzie scored just 326 into the game. But then Idaho scores four unanswered goals. So they're up four to one at Toledo. And we're going into the third period. And, I mean, it was impossible sort of not to think, like, Idaho is going for the jugular here. And Toledo ends up coming back and winning that game. It was wild. They get a Gordy Green goal. They get a Drew Warad goal a Kirill Tutayev goal, and then Brandon Hawkins wins it um, with about two and a half minutes left in the third period. So Toledo takes game three, five to four. And, you know, we're all thinking, okay, now we got a series. But I keep getting back to what I said after that first round, when Idaho lost the first two games to Utah, a team that nobody gave any chance. And then Idaho comes back and wins the next four all in overtime. That battle hardened that team. That taught them some lessons about resiliency. And you just got to shake off some of these bad moments. And coughing up a, a three, four goal lead in game three was one of them. And Idaho comes back and wins the next two games and wins the series. So to answer your question in a long-winded form, all the stuff that we loved about Idaho coming into the playoffs, terrific defense, great goaltending, um, depth up front, good coaching, all that stands. But the big thing is they became a battle-hardened playoff team because they went through it against Utah in that first round. And I'm not saying that Toledo doesn't have those dynamics because this is a team that went to the finals last year. They have a lot of experience. But Idaho figured out how to play them, things that other teams I think had sort of toyed around with I mean, you have to be physical, you have to stay out of the penalty box, and you have to, to contain Toledo in those prime situations, particularly power plays. You can't let guys like Brandon Hawkins, Brett McKenzie, those guys score at will. And Toledo, it's just, they're so impressive, uh, it, it, you know, especially with the defense, the goaltending of Adam Scheel, that, you know, I just think Toledo just didn't have enough. And that that's, says a lot because Toledo is stacked. And, you know, we mentioned Eric Wellwood. What, what does he have left to prove at this level? Dan Watson with Dan Watson. I mean, we know his name has already been connected tons to Grand Rapids. Um, You know, that's, that could have a lot of impacts because Alden Hirschfeld, who is Dan Watson's top assistant, I view him as one of the top coaching candidates in the ECHL. But if Watson moves on, does Hirschfeld go with him? Does he take over the Toledo job? Lots of factors there, but um, it's, it could be, you know, Toledo's come so, so close, you know, two finals and then a conference final this year. They still haven't figured it out. TJ Hensick, is he going to come back? I mean, he's, he's kind of been playing just the, the last half of the season. I don't know. John Albert, another guy that we don't know uh, if the coaching staff changes. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes potentially in, in the central division this year. And we'll have to see if Toledo can still remain at the top of it. One more thing we want to get to today, shifting away from the current uh, season, looking ahead, which is weird, right? Because we're, we're not even done this year. But the ECHL has announced their schedule. Um, they released it last week. It's interesting because 
first my first thought is oh this is kind of early to release it but there's so many factors that go into it right the demands the the logistics the shared arenas or the events Justin, can you enlighten us a bit as to your knowledge as to how this all comes together and maybe why it's released now as opposed to in the summer? Well, it, well it's, it's funny, summer, but it, it's funny you say that because, you know, I remember thinking two years ago, and even that's a bad example because the schedule was all backwards because of the pandemic. But right. uh, I believe we were preparing for the, the, the conference finals. I think I was like traveling or you know, it was day of the game or something. And then bam, the schedule's released. So when you're covering a team or your own team is actually still playing, it is very odd to have to then deal with the schedule announcement and all that. But especially at this level, they need as much time as they can to get out there, sell tickets to groups, start advertising, get their pocket schedules, everything made. So, you know, it's a much different animal at this level excuse me, than it is at, at, say, the NHL level or something like that. So sure. I, I get why they want to do it at this time. How does it work? Well, I'll, I'll give you the abridged version. And the, the big thing that I, I find people just assume is that it's it's computerized and there's some, you know, big company that deals with this coming in. And no, it, it is a it is a complex situation that, di- that involves all of the teams and the league office. And I want to be upfront as saying, I think they do a really good job at this, okay? I, I will complain. Lots of people will complain. This is one of those totally thankless, impossible to get everybody happy jobs because there are so many teams and you have to keep in mind the demands, okay? The demands at this level are hugely, we want to play as many games on the weekends as possible, okay? Small markets, They rely on this money. So as many Friday, Saturday, Sunday games we can get in. Now that will vary from from team to team. Like if you look at it, like there are some teams, I believe Idaho might be one. They're a little more willing to play a Wednesday night game because that might fit their market or their building than say Fort Wayne is where they want as many games on the weekends as possible because that's when they're going to get the big crowds. So you've got to deal with that. You are obviously trying to keep your travel costs down as much as possible. So if you're in the NHL, no big deal. Hey, we'll fly over to Chicago, then we'll bang on down to St. Louis, and then we'll get up to New York. This level, you can't do that. You want as little busing and hopefully no flying if you can avoid it. So a lot of staying in the same cities or you're playing in regional areas. So in other words, if you're going to go to Atlanta, you're probably going to bang over to Savannah. You know, maybe you get over to Greenville. You know, you're not going to be traveling great distances. So we're dealing with that too. And then of course you want to weigh uh, rivalries and keeping your fans happy, all that stuff. So that's what we're dealing with. Um, So how is it that like Adirondacks playing 18 games outside the division? (laughs) Well, okay. So let's back into that. You asked first, how do they do it? Teams, I believe the date is around January. You give them a list of, I think it might be 60 games. I could be off 60 dates for your home games. And you oh, basically, you basically tier them though. Um, okay. This is, you know, these are the 10 priority dates. Let's call them star right. dates. These are the ones we must have. So if you're in Fort Wayne, like we play every year on new year's, we play every year on Thanksgiving. We have to have those dates. And maybe you've identified, you know, March 8th as that's a date we just have to have. We're going to do a big theme night, big crowd, report card night, whatever it is. 
So you have your, your sort of top tier dates that you give the league, then you have your second tier dates, and then every team does that. And then unless it has changed, it used to be Joe Babbick uh, and Dan Petrino were the, the key people that would sort of put this together. And then, you know, I'm simplifying it. And then you kind of send it to the, to the teams and then you see if there's any changes. Oh, no, we need to do this date or that date. But think about all of the moving parts in there. So where I am, Fort Wayne, let's just use it as uh, an example. You know, they've got a lot of concerts. Again, they want weekend dates. Uh, things like graduations, Disney on ice is the worst words that anybody in the ECHL can hear because it will take over a building for a couple weeks. They have a circus here that'll take over a building for a couple weeks. Um, but, you know, they had a basketball team here. So until this year when the basketball team left, that team was taking weekend nights away from Fort Wayne. So, you know, it wasn't that easy for Fort Wayne to just send in dates and say, give us any of these because, you know, well, we've lost these to the basketball team, but we need to make sure that we, you know, aren't on the road for a month at a time. And so rinse, repeat with that, with every team dealing with that. And then eventually you come up with the moving parts that are manually done and you get a schedule. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Like, I mean, especially it's funny because what you just outlined is interesting for the NHL and making that sorry, making the schedule, there isn't the factor of, okay, which days are going to get more fans? No, it's more so like which days work with respective arenas, you know, teams they share with, right? If they have an NBA team or just logistics or making the travel less less crazy. So that's kind of more so where it's situated where the ECHL, it's like you have to take that into consideration, right? You, if you're giving a team like, say, Tuesday nights and – they have a, a record of having historically low numbers on those days, whatever it may be like that is detrimental to their franchise ability to make money. So it's a very, very important job. Are there ever situations where there's changes made um, sort of after like not mid-year, but sort of after schedules made and then before this next season, could there be little changes made or does that rarely happen? Uh, I've seen some little changes made. But it's and, not a common thing. No. I mean, once they put it out, they want it out, but you know, things, things certainly do change. Um, you know, so, you know, let's, let's look at some of the, I, I mean, every market has its challenges, you know, Newfoundland is going to be the biggest challenge because of their distance. We've talked about this before when they came into the league, they used to subsidize the travel for teams that would be willing to make the trip to Newfoundland because it was such an expense. Now, my understanding, at least last year was um, collectively, the league was kind of dipping into a fund to help alleviate the travel. I don't know how that's going to go moving forward, but Newfoundland is obviously um, an obstacle there. They are sort of uh, just a scheduling obstacle there. You look at a team like Allen. Okay. So they're down in the Dallas Fort Worth area. There's not too many teams near them. So obviously they're not going to spend too many times going way up to the Northeast to play, um, you know, like Adirondack or Worcester. They're going to play the lion's share of their games against teams like Idaho, Kansas City, Wichita, and that can cause you know situations where fans maybe feel they're seeing those teams too often. So, you know, there are a lot of different things that you see. So here's just a couple nuggets looking at the schedules. Things that I just picked a few teams just to give you an example of how different it can be. So the Adirondack Thunder, like you referenced, they play 18 games outside of their division. So what that says to me is that they've had a little bit more willingness to travel or the league has scheduled more teams to stop there when they're going uh, to play other teams. 
A team like Florida, however, plays only nine games outside its division. So that means if you are a Florida fan, you are seeing almost exclusively, you know, uh, uh, Savannah and Atlanta and Jacksonville and teams like that. Uh, Idaho plays 15 games outside the division, but almost its entire schedule is comprised of three straight games against teams. So, for instance, they might on one week play Wichita on Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Okay, and then the next week they'll do that with another team. So they are kind of showing, hey, we're willing to play those Wednesday night games. We're willing to travel, sit in another city for a day, and then come back on Friday. Whereas a team like Fort Wayne is playing almost all three and three nights or four and five nights. So it's not uncommon for Fort Wayne to do something like we'll go play it at uh, we'll play at home on a Wednesday, then we'll go play at Kalamazoo on Friday, then we'll come play home at Saturday, and then we'll go all the way to Wheeling on Sunday um, because they try to keep all their games in the Midwest and never have to get on a plane if they can avoid it. And I believe they've got one long trip out to rapid city and that's about it. They might have one other uh, Southern trip. So um, all kinds of different ways of doing that Uh, Fort Wayne, just to finish that, they play 14 games outside their division, which actually sounds like a lot because a couple of years ago during the pandemic, like every game was against Indy and Wheeling. Like they were just basically playing two teams that, that whole year. So, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of different elements about all these things. And, and one of the things that, you know, you can maybe uh, talk about is uh, diversity of opponents. You know, do you, when you play exclusively teams right. within your division, are you giving the fans what they want uh, or would they like to see more teams? You know, so uh, I don't know if you want to get into the, the polls yet. Go ahead. Yeah, you get, sorry, before we get to the polls, I think that's also important because in years where divisions are lopsided, let's say one division's really, really strong or whatever, like you never want to have a situation where you have a great team, like say the third best team in the ECHL is also the third best in their division, right? You never really want to have that. So as much as you can do to spread it out is probably a good thing. Well, and, and the converse too. The converse of that, I mean, to use a baseball example, I just read this really interesting article in The Athletic about the Oakland A's and how bad they are and how they're so bad and probably going to remain that, that they are tilting the entire wild card race in Major League Baseball because there are teams that are legitimately expecting to go like 19 and 0 against the A's. So you are on to something. And I have seen that before where a team has a very poor team in its division and they just feast on that team, like 15, 16 games, and it can upset the competitive balance. I don't think there's any solution to that in the ECHL because you're just never going to have a balanced schedule. Um, I can tell you if I were a fan, I would personally like to see a little bit more variety. Like I don't personally like seeing Indy and Toledo and Kalamazoo every single week. I'd be like, hey, be nice to see Idaho this week or it'd be nice to see Florida or some of these other flagship franchises. But it's just not always realistic. So I posted some polls on Twitter. I'm not going to tell you that this is the most scientific stuff because we just don't have the numbers and it's Twitter. But None of the results I got were surprising, and I think that we can glean a little bit of information on it, and and I think this will maybe answer some questions. So, um, of course, as I say that, I went to the wrong thing. Okay, here we go. So the first question I asked was, 
are you generally okay with the days that your teams play? In other words, at the ECHL, almost all the games are going to be on the weekends. As a fan, I ask, would you rather that be spread out? You know, when I go to NHL games, it could be Monday, it could be Wednesday, it could be Friday, but at the ECHL, it's almost always going to be on the weekends. This was maybe the one that surprised me a little bit. Uh, about 70% said they were fine with all weekend games. Um, now, I do tend to hear from some fans that they're like, well, at least don't give me three home games on three consecutive nights, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But generally, fans seem okay with all, most of their team's games being played on the weekend. Mm-hmm. When it comes to quality of play, are you okay with the schedule as it is? And what I meant by this was when teams play three games in three nights, the general belief is you're not going to get a great quality of play on that third night, right? Like teams are going to be tired. When I cover the Sunday games, they typically have less speed, less hitting, less fighting, less action than the game on Friday night because everybody's tired. They've been on the bus. They've been going 500 miles, whatever they're doing. Um, Surprisingly, I guess a little bit, uh, only 55% of my respondents said that three and three nights made for poor hockey. They were basically okay with watching the quality of play that they were getting on those Sunday games. Big question here. Do you feel more thought should be given to rivalries with non-division teams? 73% said that, yes, they would like to see more rivalries worked in. Here's an example of what I mean. Allen versus Fort Wayne. When those teams get together, it's always a show. It has been that way for as long as they have been playing. You're talking fights. You're talking physicality. You're talking a really good rivalry. They've met in the playoffs multiple times. They've had players go back and forth. They had a great regular season series last year. And then you see the schedule and you're like, of course, they don't play this year. That's a perfect example from my area is you will build up a nice rivalry with the team and then you won't see them again. Here's another great example. Newfoundland, Florida. You could argue that this is the best rivalry in the league right now. Why? They have met in three consecutive non-pandemic playoffs. The only times the Growlers have have failed to win a series has been at the hands of Florida. The last two times they've met, the winner has gone on to win the Kelly Cup. We just talked at the beginning of the show about this great series. Shouldn't they be on the schedule next year, especially if the travel is somehow subsidized, but they are not. So that is the type of thing that we're talking about. Again, I do think the ECHL does a good job with this, but I think fans in a perfect world would like to see, you know, a team like Florida play Newfoundland a little bit more often in the regular season, if they could. Uh, What about the 72 game schedule? Uh, I actually had a broadcaster see me um, posting these polls, and he suggested this one. He felt that 72 was too long. 66 might be better. Then you don't have to deal with the travel quite as much, those three and threes. I covered a 66-game schedule for several years. I wasn't wild about it. I didn't find that it was any more – like, I didn't – I didn't feel like there was any more time to relax or anything like that. I think over the course of a long season, those six games, it didn't, it didn't amount to much except for lost money for the teams. And so teams that participate in the 66 game season, they didn't like it. 
in my recollection. They wanted the 72 games back because they're like, all we're doing is losing money here at the the expense of giving the players a couple nights off. And so, but I like the, I like the question. Uh, So as I said, 81, maybe I didn't say this, 81% of the respondents said that the 72 game season was quote, just right. Uh, There were 11% who actually said they wanted more games and only 7% who said, um, uh, it was too many, and they would like to go back to, uh, say, a 66-game season. Um, so, you know, a couple wa- other things I did want to mention about the scheduling is it can be manipulated a little bit. So I'm not going to name the team, but there's a team I know that uh, a lot of years, if you look at their schedule, they backload it. They are not playing home games at the early part of the season. They're finishing the season, however, with tons of home games. Hopefully you can see the advantage there, which is, you know, you finish strong uh, and and you you sort of punt on those early season road games, and then you're better rested when it gets to the playoffs. And I started asking about this team. Actually, there was two teams. I started asking around, like, how was that happening? And what I was told was it basically all went back to the available dates that they would hand into the league. But the ironic thing here is think about the situations with various arenas. If your team happens to own the arena, you can, you can manipulate that schedule as much as you want. You can book something like you could book. Well, you can, you you, you could just say it's not available, even though, even though it is like in a city like Fort Wayne, for instance, they don't own the arena. They are renting the arena for nights. They use it. They have no control over the available dates. And that is, public record you could pull up the coliseum website and say okay there's the harlem globetrotters are here that night they obviously can't play that night but when a team that owns the arena is saying well we don't have available dates early in the season that's a little bit preposterous because they they could make any date available they want right you know now if they've already sold a concert on this night okay that's one thing but if the alternative is you can't necessarily force them to a hundred percent, they own it and they could change it, but you, you can't make them. Well, I mean, the league could kind of do whatever it wants, but, but yes, but you, you see what I'm saying there? Like totally, if, yeah. you're, if you're sitting there and you're team X and you could sit there and say, you know what, oh, we're going to make Friday, you know, Friday, October 28th available at the next Friday and the next Friday, or you could say, no, we're not handing those in. We're going to sell a concert or a high school event or do nothing. And so you can do some, whether it's gamesmanship or whatever you want to call it, to tweak right. that schedule to your, uh, your satisfaction. Every team would do it if they could. But the teams that own their buildings, that's really the point I should be making here, they have a scheduling advantage over the teams that do not. And I think... You know that you know so so fans that complain about their team schedule or complain about people like me saying other teams have an advantage, make sure you know who owns the building and look and see those dates, see if they're open because oftentimes you can just click on the arena schedule and say, "Huh, it's interesting the hockey team isn't playing here at all in November because I don't see anything else going on in that building." But I should say the one team that I am referencing this year, I did look at their schedule and they have a lot of early home dates. So good to them, anonymous team. Well, we'll check in on the anonymous team next year, but let's focus on this year and we'll get to that next episode where we'll be in the middle of the Kelly Cup with Idaho and Florida. 
But until then, we'll sign off. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.